Welcome to Climate Insiders, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the climate revolution. My name is Johan Berno, and I'm on a mission to shake things up. It is time we get serious and address this climate crisis. In each episode, I'll provide a platform for top climate thinkers, entrepreneurs, and investors to share their insights, innovations, and contrarian views. Let's learn from visionary thought leaders and hear their ideas that can profoundly reshape society and bring us one step closer to a sustainable world. Jacqueline, what a pleasure to host you on Climate Insiders. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And I've been told by one of your colleagues, actually recently, that we're almost like twins based on our personal <laughs> career steps, the energy levels, our obsession with a great climate war, I call it, and this topic of democratizing climate tech investing. So as I was preparing for the interview, I realized that I started getting much more excited about the personal stuff than the business stuff. Yeah. So I, I thought I would selfishly <laughs> start there. And then we'll end up peeling the carbon equity onion uh, in the second half. How does that yeah, sound? Perfect. All for it. <laughs> All right. So right off the bat, how would Jacqueline describe Jacqueline van den Ender to others in the climate tech world? Oh, shit. Who are you? That's, a, <laughs> that's a hard <laughs> question. Okay. I, I would describe myself as a, a professional adventurer. I... I'm an investor turned entrepreneur turned investor turned entrepreneur. Actually, entrepreneur turned investor turned entrepreneur turned investor turned entrepreneur. I, I like, uh, I love the freedom and the adventure and the crazy learning curve of entrepreneurship. Uh, so I, yeah, I want to have an impact. I want to learn as much as I can. And I want to have a very not boring job. <laughs> and hence, it's why, why I do what I do. That's awesome. And, and uh, what is carbon equity? Just to set some context, what do you do kind of roughly? Yeah. Carbon equity technically is a climate venture capital and private equity fund investing platform. Basically, what we do is we enable you, uh, retail and mass affluence and high network investors to invest in dozens to hundreds of uh, some of the world's most awesome climate technology companies together with the world's best professional climate investors. Awesome. So we'll kind of come back to this, but I want to keep it macro and get personal. Yeah. So I, I, I read you a lot on LinkedIn, your LinkedIn top voice. Congratulations. And Thank I have you. to say you trigger a lot of, of intriguing questions. So uh, one of my first questions is as a capital allocator, entrepreneur, podcaster, I mean, you've, you've done a lot. Where do you get this drive? You know, you've done it all and what fuels you and what has fueled you all those years? Oh, good question. I am in part fueled by honestly climate drive. I read the book, The Sixth Extinction in 2019. It talks about the five major extinction events in the history of the planet and how we're right in the midst of the six. And I honestly think that climate risk is existential and that there is no time to waste. And I want to spend the rest of my career in, you know, helping solve climate change as much as I can. Secondly, I guess I'm just born and gifted with a lot of energy. So, you know, mm -hmm. I can <laughs> I can work 24-7, <laughs> days a week or even more. And I won't get tired. So I guess I have a lot of energy to give. And the third thing for me, building a company is the richest thing you can do. It's literally, you know, being that adventurer. And I love adventuring. I love uh, snowboarding and hiking and surfing, etc. And for me, entrepreneurship is sort of the equivalent of doing that in business. So, mm. yeah. Interesting. And also the legend says that you have two weapons in this climate fight. Can you expand on those? Yeah, I, I, uh, I like sort of the parable of, you know, what's your weapon of choice? And I think we all have unique competences. And one of the interesting things to ask yourself is what is my superpower? And I think my superpowers are twofold. Uh, one is uh, storytelling, I guess. I, 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 this is what I do on LinkedIn. I use my voice similar to that. You do that on the Climate Insiders podcast uh, and also on LinkedIn. 
I have thoughts that I try to capture and share with the world when I think they're relevant. And with that, I can build a bit of a following and perhaps uh, have a certain influence uh, through my thoughts and relatability. The second weapon I have is uh, the energy or the, and the ability to build companies and get people enthusiastic about the companies that I start. And that's my second weapon of choice is... Um, in this case, uh, capital. So carbon equity seeks to really solve climate change by moving capital at the scale of billions into actual climate technology solutions. So my second weapon is entrepreneurship and capital. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And, and also, I, I heard you say that you're an extroverted introvert. So I'd love to hear yeah. what that means for you and how you mm. deal with that energy flow. And I, I can really, I'm exactly the same. Uh, and, and I used to be much more introverted as kind of venture more on the extroversion side at the yeah. beginning, you felt like forced, but then, uh, so how do you deal with this, uh, and, uh, and being super public on LinkedIn, very personal at times and on yeah. podcasts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, uh, it's interesting indeed to be an extrovert introvert. I think a lot of people are like that. So I think the people, when they meet me at the surface or for the first time, they think like, Whoa, she's so extroverted. She is so present or social or whatever. At the same time, I really need to, it costs me a lot of energy. It costs me a lot mm. of energy to be public <laughs> in podcasts, in keynotes, on LinkedIn. Occasionally, I just feel like I want to hide. Do you know? I don't know if you have ah, that yeah, feeling occasionally. And it's, oh, for sure. Yeah. At times, I just want to hide from my LinkedIn network and just be a bit invisible for a moment. I mean, I'm obviously not, not, I'm not a LinkedIn celebrity or something, but at times when you realize, oh, I have quite a following it can create some sort of pressure uh, or as a CEO in general, always needing to show up and being the front person in your company. And I think the introverted side of me just occasionally just wants to hide under a rock and, uh, and, and, and not have to put myself out there all the time. How do you deal with that? And what is your way of coping? Oh uh, yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot. I mean, <laughs> Uh, this is a question I ask myself all the time. I, I am, am maybe even more introverted than you. And frankly, at the beginning, it, it, frankly, I had had a, a LinkedIn account since 2007. And the first time I ever posted something was probably 2017. So for mm. 10 years, I was kind of the guy scrolling, hiding, not expressing myself because there's too much risk. And then I think I had a bit of an aha moment when I discovered that I, the, the, the online voice is not you, you know, yeah. It's, it's a, a bit of a persona that I want to leverage to help others and to spread important ideas. So as from the moment that you dissociate yourself from the real me in real mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. and to this uh, kind of almost manufactured persona, it, it enables you uh, to use that weapon, you know, mm -hmm. the voice again. Mm -hmm. And so um, from the moment I, I cracked this open, I broke the ice, I, it enabled me to do newsletters and then podcasts step by step. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Still, still hard <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah and for, i would say yes i i totally understand what you're saying there for me i think linkedin at the occasion can also be very personal and very vulnerable and very real um which is also i think the power in it occasionally um but it is really putting yourself out there and there's value in that and there's power in that but there's also um yeah definitely an energy drain and yeah, yeah. And also on the other side, right? The flip side of this is this, um, the, I discovered this this year, it might sound very trite or, but there's the yang energy, right? So in Eastern mm -hmm. cultures, the yin is what's, you know, keeping you kind of grounded. And then the yang energy is that drive, the ambition, yes. the one, more, more, more. Yeah. Uh, and, and I discovered that my drive has always been kind of native, you know, I yeah. haven't had to push this. Mm. Uh, and if anything, I need to slow it down because otherwise mm. I burn myself out. Yes. Uh, so curious to know how you prevent yourself from going very close to that burnout line of, uh, you know, and, and also I'll add to it. So there's a personal element, but I really think that our society is actually suffering from that yeah. yang energy. Yes. We are overproducing, overconsuming. We want more, more, more. Yeah. We're never satisfied. Yes. <laughs> I fully agree to that. I I find it really hard. I need to learn how to control that young energy because I'm a maximizer that also puts me in a position to do a lot of things and to have a lot of energy to share with uh, the world. But it's also, I am constantly overloaded. Just, uh, mm. 
too much email. I, 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 I can't, I, I am not in control of the level of activity and things that are demanded from me. I just get flooded with emails and LinkedIn messages. I can't keep up. And then I sort of walk into my day, not knowing what's in my calendar and just having the feeling that you're constantly chasing your tail. And I don't take enough time to sleep or to really recover. I find it really hard to unwind on weekends. At the same time, I also really know uh, that happiness, true happiness, does not come from achievement or success or from fame. And especially at Carbon Equity, where we work with a lot of high net worth individuals who are, you know, who seemingly have it all, I can really see that there's no relationship between wealth and actual happiness. Mm. And that there is also no solution to busyness. So my learning from the past year, my realization is that it's really a mindset thing that me being busy is a choice and that I have it, I, I, I can have it within my control to really dial down, create more space in my life for my wife, for sports, for health. It's all a matter of priorities. So it's, too easy to blame it on sort of the external environment of what is asked from you. You need to take more ownership, but I'm still very much in the process of transitioning from that realization to actually changing the, my, my life choices. Uh, you know, what's funny is, is another really t top realization of this year for me, the idea of, um, and I had a coach here to help me with this, mm. uh, of, of, uh, reframing work, my relationship yeah. to work has always been kind of unhealthy because I was yes. working on weekends or the night and it's very much uh, the American kind of mindset. Yeah. And, and I reframe this in the sense that what you personal development, personal work is work. Yes. It might not be in your agenda on your Google, you know, spreadsheet or whatever, or have productive value, but it is productive because you're, it helps you recharge. It helps you be more productive long-term. It helps you become more creative. So uh, whenever you go to the gym, you do meditation, you go to yoga, or you spend quality time with your parents or you know, spouse, it is actually work. Yes, and exactly. And, and, and you should treat it at the same level rather than sort of like it's something that comes after work. I, I occasionally have well, maybe not fights, but arguments with my wife about this, that she says, well, first in your life comes your work and then uh, comes maybe your surfing. And then what is left is for me. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be sort of, you know, the, the bucket of what is left. So by treating things at the same level as, as work and really making that investing in your health, investing in sports, investing in your relationship, like, when you say seeing that as work and treating that with the same level of intent rather than sort of like coming home at the end of the day and, you know, crashing on the couch next to your partner, treating that with intent completely changes the way that you prioritize or, or look at how you organize your life. Uh, completely. Couldn't relate more. And another personal matter is the dealing with eco-anxiety. So I'm sure mm. that is a fuel for you, but it also comes with a downside. Is, uh, is It's not getting better. Mm, yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. the rising climate threats are getting more and more present. And how do you deal with this? Any trick or that you could share? Yeah, I notice it personally occasionally. When you see extreme weather, for example, occasionally, I really notice that the rains have become so much more intense than I remember them growing up. Or occasionally I'm in really beautiful places and I get sort of overwhelmed by regrets of, I can actually picture sort of, you know, places in the Netherlands being completely flooded, probably wiped away. <laughs> that sounds very cataclysmic and, and it might be. Um, but I, I have active moments of regret thing, uh, regret for children that I see and thinking like, oh my gosh, you're going to grow up in such a more difficult world or regret for places that I think, well, these might very well disappear. Um, and then at the same time, I can also really switch that off or I do switch off to the point that I won't read every climate report or all of the climate news or occasionally don't want to read the news at all sort of not wanting to, you know, absorb all of this uh, negative uh, news and outlook because it doesn't always feel productive. Okay. We know no. it. So what, what do we do about it? And I think in general, that's one of the big challenges of climate news. And one of the reasons why 
despite all the knowledge and science that we have, it's not reaching people because people easily feel like, okay, yeah, but so what, what can I do? And so for me, the key, and that's one of the reasons why I started Carbon Equity is giving people tools that are maybe to even to a certain extent selfish. And for example, invest in, in lucrative, like, I mean, in, in high financial returns, whilst investing in climate tech. By giving people t- tools to start doing something. And I think from that starting doing something, that's where people gain a level of uh, feeling of empowerment, which then inspires further action. But starting with small steps. Yeah. Uh, well, you're, you're triggering a good one here. So we need a hook. And I also believe in that hook uh, in a hi- hyper you know, capitalistic society that where money is the main driver. Mm. So if people can get to financial freedom by investing in something green and positively impactful, that might be just a trigger, you know, the hook to get them more invested in that mission. Yes, exactly. Correct. And if I look at sort of carbon equity uh, customers or investors, 50% of people come with a climate impact motivation. They already know that they want to do the most impactful thing they can do with their money, uh, by investing in actual climate technology startups and scale-ups through carbon equity, and they come with this climate intent. But 50% of people uh, basically uh, purely look or primarily look at the financial opportunity of like, okay, investing in climate is one of the biggest macroeconomic themes there's going to be for the coming decades. Obviously, this is a huge growth market. So they invest with us because of the the real possibility of generating outsized financial returns. But these people at the same time, you know, without the initial intent of being a climate investor, become a climate investor. And so they're already doing something. And I do believe in this sort of spillover effect. Same psychology that people who have a Tesla are more inclined to have uh, solar panels because you start to Uh move your identity start to open up your identity to being something who's doing something. And that, you know, that gives energy and confidence to do more. I, it's funny. I use exactly the same. (laughs) This is why we're twins. I use exactly the same image. I try people, you know, to, um, and a lot of people in cities in Europe can relate to uh, being a vegetarian or vegan and it's polarized and unnecessarily, but people that have kind of gone through this understand that once you become vegetarian, you cut down on meat. It's not just your diet that gets impacted; is your entire identity. Is you start cutting down on flying, on overproduction. Yeah. You dress differently. You start mm-hmm. telling your friends and family. It spreads different ideas. And yeah. the hook was just the food. Yes, and correct. And it puts you to operate a whole bunch of changes. Yes, correct. That's I I, I do believe in that thesis of the hook. Yeah. And so. Um, uh, since you're going there, why, if we kind of question the why, should we involve the broader public and to have more people get into great, you know, uh, green companies? Because there's a bunch of VCs in place, there's uh, LPs, there's already an infrastructure and there's a finance sector. So why do we need to empower the broader public? Because there's a whole lot of money that is unused. And uh, quite specifically, that's $177 trillion in, uh, in dollars, $177 trillion that sit with mass affluence uh, individuals. And mass affluent here is defined as people with a net worth between 100K and 1 million. And mm-hmm. that part of the market uh, has uh, barely any access to private markets. The only thing that you can typically do is uh, angel investments, which uh, you partially do. And angel investments are super great. I mean, it's impactful and it's also super fun typically to invest in early stage startups. The only downside of angel investing is that it's pretty risky and it's also typically time and resource intensive if you want to do it well. So what we said is, well, there is an additional, there is something that you can do in addition to angel investing, which is when you look at high net worth investors or professional investors, typically what they do is they invest in a fund. And uh, the advantage of investing in a fund is that you have a professional investor who does the work for you. So if you have less expertise or you don't have time to do investments yourself, then you lean on a professional investor who will do the work for you. And secondly, you diversify your risk. So with carbon equity, invest instead of investing in a single company, you typically invest in a portfolio of 150 to 200 all the world's best climate tech innovations. And so it's a super risk diverse fund, therefore also lower risk of investing in uh, climate technology as a theme. 
how do we get involved the people that are not really uh, currently involved? It's still a, too much of a bubble, you know, too yeah. niche, particularly women. Yeah. And you and I spoke about this. this is a, I mean, is it, we're talking about half society here that is yes. kind of self-excluding. So how do yeah. we crack this? Oh, that's a really hard question. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of work to do. I, I think, you know, women, my experience is that uh, women are much more conservative. And uh, my hypothesis is uh, that women have less self-confidence uh, in, in investing. And secondly, maybe also think things through uh, more rigorously than men which is both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing in the sense that you probably make more sensible decisions. It's a bad thing in the sense that you often miss out on opportunity because you are afraid to take risks. I think the self-confidence gap is a more universal thing. And for me, I blame that on culture. Um, I lived in the Philippines for a long time. And uh, the Philippines, I would say, is the most emancipated place I've ever been. Like the, mm -hmm. the, the, the lowest gender difference I've seen in any society. And one of the interesting things is that I discovered in the Philippines is that there's no word for he or she. And that makes a huge difference uh, because I realized that in the Netherlands, we stereotype everything from an early age. You know, I grew up in, I'm from 1984 and I grew up with books, you know, you know, mom uh, uh, waving to dad who was going to work. And uh, the doctor was always a guy and the CEO was a guy and the pilot was a guy and the teacher was a girl. And so there was a huge amount of stereotyping and uh, expectation setting as a result of stereotyping on what people could be and my thesis therefore is that young guys grow up with much more of a mindset of that they can achieve anything they can become a ceo they can become a pilot they can become a rocket scientist whatever they want and for women who don't have those examples they have capped their mindset and what they can be and i think the same thing goes with investing that's a high risk entrepreneurship and investing are high risk endeavors and so if you grow up with less of that self-confidence that Yes, you can be successful as an entrepreneur, as an investor. That changes your mindset. My second thesis on this is that, and this is quite foundational to my you know, thinking about carbon equity, is I mm -hmm. call that uh, my thesis, my hypothesis is that in the past uh, 50 years, we've looked at money as a goal in itself. So we grew up with, you know, money being the hallmark of success. And what you would do is you would buy a big house or you would have a flashy car, you know, a Porsche. And that was really, you would be very successful if you had a Porsche. My thesis is that now, first of all, that mindset is changing. So our status symbols are changing away from material achievements to more experiential or to more impact symbols of uh, of achievement, right? It's more cool to talk about your impact and what you're doing basically to help the world than it is to talk about uh, your 2,000 euros a month electricity bill because it was such an expensive and big house. So I call this sort of a shift in thinking from money as a goal in itself to money as a means. And I think m women, my hypothesis is that women have been much less appealed by this money as a goal in itself type narrative about capital. But the moment that we start thinking about money as a way to help solve the world's global, largest global challenges, you know, money as a means, not a goal in itself, I think it becomes so much more exciting to think about money. And I think that's a message that might resonate with much more women because it becomes so much less selfish. Oh, wow. That's, I fully agree with you. There's um, there's two ways to approach this. The front door, which is uh, we don't change the system currently, and it's a market. It's just a monetary value, and we need to train an army of women to get to it. Or we, the longer term uh, <laughs> pathway, but it's also the back door. It's going to be much more complex. Is we transform the entire uh, value system of our society, which is not yes. indexed on. On, money, on on material you know, success, but on mm. personal development and quality, yeah. uh, human connections and spiritual growth and all that stuff. And yes. I'm a huge advocate for that. Yeah, I, I it's it's funny uh, we could debrief and just speak for, for hours about this. I'm I want to use as a hook the monetary uh, aspect because I think it would be too hard to go through the back door. But you might be right. Maybe we should kind of get from the get go. 
um, you know, trying to break or bend the system and not yes. break it and yeah. bend it towards a reset of uh, marks of success. Yeah, I, I strongly believe in this uh, vision, uh, what you call optimizing for you know, quality of life, not so much for, and we've been very much maximizing, maximizing, uh, your net assets, maximizing career achievements. But what we're missing is sort of the whole point of quality of life. I mean, being super mm. rich or working insanely hard because you're a CEO of a big shot company does not at all equate to quality of life or happiness. So what if we start optimizing for quality of life and happiness over, a purely financial metrics. I think that's a very interesting and rather appealing vision to a lot of people growing up in our rat race, you know, generation where it's so much about achievements and, but where we're sort of missing life itself because we're so busy in, in achieving stuff. And it, it it's funny because it makes a whole lot of sense because there's a vast, vast, vast majority of society is getting fucked today. Yeah. You know, they're just not winning. Yeah. at this game and even the winners are getting depressed and anxious to do more mm. so there's something fundamentally broken with this narrative so we need a new narrative and i it seems so damn uh, hard to impose a narrative globally but i feel like that revolution or evolution might be actually quicker than we think i don't know if you've thought of how, what's going to be the the triggering event well at the same time one one qualifier vacation on what we just discussed is that obviously there are a lot of people in the world who have far too little and who still need to get to sort of a basic level of comfort and so it's obviously a pretty privileged perspective and in our generation of people who are thinking about hey how could we potentially downsize live with less and optimize for happiness over uh over, <laughs> over wealth but I do think that it is a felt experience uh, and that's, I don't know, I think change, status symbols are changing. It's less cool than it used to be, for example, I would assume maybe just in my climate bubble, but let's say to, you know, to, to, you remember a few years ago, still people would have like this global checklist of like, I need to sign off on every country that I've traveled to in the world, for example, or, uh, or material status symbols of having a, a, a Lamborghini or something. I feel uh, slowly culture is changing and we're starting to revalue, uh, those old status symbols and start to value new status symbols of, for example, what is your relevance in the world? And I would say yeah. there's such a moment of people want to work in impact. And that means that they value different things. Um, so I think it will be slow, slowly a cultural shift. Uh, the question is, you know, does that move fast enough? I, I want to play devil's advocate. I mean, I'm, I'm like you. Um, I, I want to believe that there's a shift and it's being operated. And definitely in the Netherlands, you guys are ahead of the curve. The, the Scandies, right? In, in uh, the Nordics or even Berlin. Well, yeah. as soon as I get out of those kind of bubbles, I realize how little totally. <laughs> has actually evolved. And yes. I believe to today, at least, uh, that our voices are important. Everyone's yeah. voice is important. So we diffuse like ripples, you know, you yes. have like a silent lake and you're throwing pebbles and it creates ripple effect. But I also think that we need to get on board the the big influencers, the the role models, you know, the professional athletes, the yes. Kylian Mbappe, Serena Williams, all those guys. And it's happening, yeah. meaning they identify that, they, they, they sort of identify with their values as well. They understand that if they put their values out there, it's going to reflect good on them. Yeah. And I feel like that's a, very much of a top down. I mean, those guys have megaphones, you know, millions yes. and millions of followers all across the world. Yeah. So if we get those guys on board, I think we can move much, much faster. I, I would agree uh, that I totally agree. That's also occasionally sort of my own exhaustion with my own LinkedIn network because I feel I'm creating a ripple effect in a pool of people who are really sort of like-minded, so I'm not actually reaching anybody new. And yes, influence can play a big role. One of the big threats in that is politicization, increasingly polarization mm -hmm. of this debate because by now people who – actually there was um, – a very good example in the Netherlands of a uh, artist. Uh, she's a very famous actor, Chris van Houten. She's been in Game of Thrones, etc. And so 
she really threw herself the climate cause um, and got a lot of shit for it. Like, you know, she literally got hate messages of people who said, well, if I see you protesting on the highway, then I will drive over you with my car and really hate, hate, (laughs) hate. Yeah. And so, you know, as an, as a celebrity, you also sort of risk your, you know, risk putting yourself on the chopping block uh, by, being super vocal about such a topic. And I think one of the things that we really need to tackle is, you know, how to avoid this polarization, which is, I think, very widespread. I I spoke to, you know, a potential customer the other day in Germany by coincidence, and he was saying, I see my friends moving in two directions. Some people move into increasing a green lifestyle. And then the other group is sort of moving the opposite way of just, yeah, giving uh, very few fucks uh, in, uh, in polite language uh, to uh, because they feel like, well, you know, it's such a big problem. It's too late. Can't do anything. It doesn't really matter at all if I do anything or not. And so how do we, how do we stop this polarization? It's a question on my mind because I think it's very crucial uh, to make any kind of progress. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. It's, um, it seems like another symptom of a profound trauma you know within our society and our values it's just yet another manifestation of there's something deeply broken inside mm. you know i actually wrote a manifesto that i will publish soon on the oh. fact that uh, the growth economic growth has turned into autoimmune disease mm. you know yes. it helped us for decades get out yes. of poverty and increasing yeah. the lifespan but now it's kind of destroying ourselves yes the human cells. that's right i totally agree with that perspective yeah and well, actually, good segue because I, th- there needs to be a shift in axiological perspectives. And we are, as an industry, climate tech, but as venture capital, we are promoting green growth. The yes. idea of it, it's not a growth is happening, unfortunately. I mean, it's yeah. fortunately or unfortunately. Yeah. And we rather decarbonize by making it green. Um, but is it, in your opinion, more and more and more green growth, perpetual growth, the actual solution to our biggest problems? No. Or is it elsewhere? <laughs> no, I, I, I uh, no. So I do think that we need green growth and that there's a lot of room for green growth because I do believe in a partially technocratic point of view that we need uh, equally good but green alternatives to the things that we do because I think that people at large are only to a certain extent willing to compromise on their lifestyles. I also think that the footprint that we have in general and sort of the unlimited pursuit of growth is completely unsustainable. It's physically impossible because you can simply going to hit the planetary boundaries. So I think we will need to learn to live with less. And I think that as we uh, invest in uh, green growth, we also really need to be redefining how we think about success and how we measure growth. So I believe in sort of the Kate, Kate Rayworth donut economics, much more holistic way of, of measuring growth, of pricing and externalities to make sure that we uh, uh, grow in a sustainable way, uh, which is sustainable for all stakeholders. The all stakeholder model versus the pure shareholder model is something. So my own way of doing this is I'm working on what I can uh, with the Mm -hmm. tools that I have and that I know, which is investing capital in actual climate solutions, whilst in the process learning and uh, thinking about what the right economic model is going forward and starting to seed those thoughts myself whilst learning from other people because i simply i also frankly don't know what the, what the right and achievable model is uh, but starting to think increasing about how do we move towards a more holistic way of thinking what's your view and- <laughs> I could do a whole podcast on this. Uh, I, I think you spoke also about this paradox, the, the Javens paradox, uh, yes. the fact that as we increase technological efficiency, yes. it, re- it leads to, to more resource consumption. So it's just yes. endless rent raise as we're trying to bring efficiency, decarbonize, we just consume more and more and more and more. Yeah. So we need a, a decoupling. And yes. that decoupling cannot happen with um, growth. 
ชื่อเนี่ยเอ่อสมมุติเนี่ยเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ
it should really be an area of last resort. I do think we need to serious research into uh, geoengineering geoengineering and solutions, but the main focus and 95% of our energy should be focused on fixing the core problem and finding a way to live more sustainably as humans in balance with uh, nature and our planet. Yeah, yeah. And as we evoke geoengineering, that means that probably, most likely, the, the oil and gas industry will need to play a role. I mean, they're the best suited to do this at scale. They have the infrastructure knowledge. They've been doing this, you know, in a way for decades. Mm. Um, and it's kind of the elephant in the room. And I still see too few people speaking about this openly. You know, we need to call those guys out. I mean, <laughs> yeah. they are, they are, uh, it is number one by far of the problems that we need to address, right? Using mm. less oil and gas, doing yeah. less extraction, less refining, less, you know, and yes. it's now they're responsible for most of the geopolitical conflicts. I mean, the war in Ukraine is just that. Uh, we see it in, in, in Germany, the reliance on, on Russian gas. And you guys in the Netherlands are well positioned. I mean, Shell mm. is probably is a, one of the majors, I would say number two or three at this point. And yeah. uh, the recent CEO I saw you posting on this yeah. uh, promised to be ruthless yeah. in the pursuit of higher returns for shareholders as he thinks to catch up with the U.S. rivals. And I'm like, that is completely against the course of history it's just bananas like completely nuts so how do we stop this disaster how do we call those guys out so they stop doing their crazy game <laughs> I, I think there is uh i think there's a role for activism i i occasionally join uh, protests on uh, the we block the highways in the netherlands uh, to sort of stop fossil fuels i think there is a role for that it won't solve it i think there's a role for shareholder activism such as follow this or engine number one in the states you really try to through uh, shareholder activism try to change board seats I think we need to make an appeal to people at an individual level. I strongly believe in personal leadership because I think there is no time to wait for the next generation of leaders. So people who are currently in a leadership seat, they will need to, they are going to change the course of history. They're going to determine the course of history. So I think we need to call people out on their own behavior Mm -hmm. and make a moral appeal. I coincidentally just spoke to a board member of Shell uh, whom I had that conversation with that I understand that the transition of a oil company to a non-oil and gas future is really, really hard. And one of the transitions they're trying to balance is if we move too fast, we will lose all of our shareholders, or at least all the shareholders who simply don't care much about this transition. And when if you completely lose all of your shareholders, then you are powerless. That's typically the, the rationale of why people want to keep their shareholders on board. And my argument was, I said, my main ask from you or the board of Shell is that we push the agenda uh, of energy transition so far that you almost lose the majority of your shareholders. Maybe not quite. You will lose the most opportunistic ones. But what I want for boards and especially for CEOs to have is a vision of how they're going to get through the energy transition and proactively ask the shareholders to support them on that vision. Because very often when I hear the narrative is, is that, yes, but the shareholders want their financial returns. So I, as a CEO, am powerless and I must follow that demand of the market. And I think that's a cowardly stance. I think you need to paint a vision of what is necessary for Shell to survive on a 500-year scale because there is still a livable planet. And to Mm -hmm. ask your Shell to support that vision, not everybody's going to come along, but if you have a sufficiently strong and inspiring vision and you deliver on it, I'm sure you can get more done than you currently done. So you need to push it to that limit. I think that's a responsibility. It's not realistic that oil and gas companies will immediately drop everything that they're doing. But I want people to have a proactive agenda. Yeah, and here's another fun fact. I realize uh, that this is not an economic um, debate anymore. This is almost a survivalism debate or geopolitical uh, and uh, public sovereignty. So here, here's a fun fact. Norway has gone from the 70s as one of the poorest countries in Europe to one of the richest in the world. You know, mm. the HDI is the number one. They have the highest uh, GDP per capita. And it's all because of oil and gas. Mm. Uh, today, Norway, the sovereign and uh, wealth fund of Norway, owns 
12% of all publicly listed companies in the world. Yeah, same. So yeah. think about this. It's like yeah. a population of, uh, you know, a four or five million people, I believe, and they own 10 to 15% of uh, stocks worldwide. And then same thing is completely going astronomical in Saudi, right? Recently, they're just going to emancipated and they've gone completely bananas on 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 sports doing sport yes. washing buying yes. all sort of athletes they're trying yeah. to buy influence uh, and what's what's funny is the reserves that are known to date owned by saudi are enormous yes. meaning the money that they currently have is peanuts compared to the money that they will have if things continue trending yeah. so that means that the influence they will have not just on uh, an economical stance, but also cultural and an influence over the West and the rest of the world will be enormous. And they're throwing this money out of the window by creating neon projects, crazy cities, and you know, burning cash. So at some point, we, we need to consider oil and gas uh, as a huge problem. Yes. That needs to be addressed. You know, the I same totally way agree. that we talk about big tech yes, and and need to censor Facebook and Google and some of those guys. But I don't hear any countries uh, trying to subpoena or, or you know, uh, bring up on the public space the idea of banning oil and gas players because they would become too, too big. <laughs> yes. Yeah, totally. I think the vested interests and especially the geopolitical interests are ginormous. And we are in a huge prisoner's dilemma because if you don't do it, then your neighbor will do it and you will lose power over them and then you're gone entirely. So the, often the rationale to sort of keep justifying investments in oil and gas and sort of, you know, countries levering off the, the profits of this is basically to retain a seat of influence at the table. But then you know, who's going to escape from the prisoner's dilemma? So it's a uh, right. <laughs> hugely uh, complex uh, challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we've been talking for, for a very long time on, on micro topics, and I love this. I also wanted to make sure that we t- touch on carbon equity a little bit <laughs> and your core mission. So I, we're very aligned on the idea that we need those tools to help accelerate the climate tech fight. And it's also a hook to help people embrace this narrative and change themselves, kind of self-identify. Yeah. Um, do you um, do, do you have any tips on, or maybe how can you describe your service? Mm. What's the minimum ticket so people can get going? Yeah. And and how do we broaden the spectrum so we go much further beyond the high net worth guys? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so at the moment, the minimum ticket is still 100,000 euros. And what that buys you is basically an equity stake in 150 to 200 of the world's best climate technology companies. And across all of Europe and the US, both early stage ventures, uh, growth, scale ups, and even mature uh, large companies. Uh, and that's across the whole spectrum of climate solutions. Uh, for example, Carbon Cure, a company that does you know, they mm-hmm. capture cement from carbon factories and then inject it into cement to make it stronger, form energy, giant batteries, uh, plant-based food alternatives. So the whole spectrum of literally every building block that we need to build a net zero future is what you invest in through carbon equity. In the near future, uh, hopefully around uh, September in the Netherlands and uh, January in uh, the January in next year for other countries, we will be able to offer these uh, funds or fund of fund investments from twenty five thousand euros. Um, that's that's great. And the vision there is that anybody with a pension, a savings, uh, an, an inheritance. Uh, or people, families pulling funds can help uh, build a net zero future whilst also making a, a strong financial uh, return. Yeah, I definitely uh, lowers the the entry to barrier, the barrier to entry. Sorry, and and we need to go far beyond that. Yes. Uh, do you think there's a world where anyone with a thousand euros can get involved? <laughs> Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, uh, it's for sure. It's technically possible. Uh, and carbon equity might get there one day if we do a B2B to C distribution. So carbon equity is uh, primarily direct to consumer. People just come to our website, uh, sign up for a fund and invest. But uh, one of the ideas that we're actively exploring is working together, for example, with neobanks, uh, with uh, pension players, where you can select a carbon equity fund as one of your investments 
and then uh, it becomes even easier to reach uh, retail investors who want to start investing with a thousand because currently you can uh, do that through angel investing uh, initiatives such as your own right uh, mm-hmm. but for carbon equity um, will be hard to build a such scalable distribution ourselves. So we'll partner with third parties to enable access for everyone. Because I realize that 25K investing 25 has is still a pretty privileged position. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, carbon equity uh, at the moment is still a, a bit exclusive in that sense. Uh, but I have a long-term view on building carbon equity. My um term for building this company successfully is at least 10 years uh so we have to do things step by step uh and we will get there one day yeah and and thanks for the the plug i'm also going public about this so i stepped down as a fund manager of clementum capital to refocus my role and what i will do is i i will i I launched an online course to help uh all of you you know, that once you get into climate tech investing, learn the ins and outs over two days. So it's a cohort based course. You can learn everything and uh, and it's extremely hands on. Uh, so you can check out in the, the show notes or just Google investing climate tech like a VC. And also, <laughs> I, I also want to help democratize even further because I was frustrated of hearing all my friends and, and people that wanted to invest in the fund, but definitely uh, unable to put 100,000 or 200,000 euros on the table. So I have created a community to help people angel invest. So if you go through that course, uh, you graduate and you know, kind of, I take you from a, a four, you know, out of 10 or three, four to eight or nine, and you can start investing in awesome deals with the community. So yeah, that's just a good way to get. And hopefully we will partner up with Carbon Equity. That would be point. cool. <laughs> that would be definitely cool. Yeah. And uh, well, it, it's been awesome. I mean, I could continue forever. <laughs> <laughs> Jacqueline, this, uh, I was so pumped about this conversation and I think we definitely delivered big time. So I will continue doing my homework and, and you know, uh, digesting everything and reflecting on all those points. Sure. Yes. Thanks for your inspiring energy. <laughs> Pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's an honor. Awesome. And to all of you, this is season three of Climate Insiders and it's just getting started. I have uh, been blown away by the lineup, you know, people that are accepted to come on the show. So stay tuned. You can sign up to a newsletter, you know, just on, on the podcast website. Until next time, stay tuned. If you haven't already, sign up for my weekly newsletter. Along with receiving updates about each new episode, you will also get one actionable insight every Saturday to boost your career, fund or startup. My newsletter is value-packed authentic and full of unique insights. This newsletter is also the best way to join our growing community of climate investors. We found that building a community is probably the ultimate force multiplier, and it gives us the momentum we need to create profound change. Let's share and collaborate. I'm just here to empower you to get started and set you on a path to success so our collective ideas can flourish and expand. Come join us to drive huge impact. Ooh.